Well, we've been uh, looking at uh, 1 Timothy, toggling between 1 Samuel and 1 Timothy, and so my pleasure today is to continue our study in 1 Timothy and to consider the truth of God's Word. Uh, we've been covering chapter 3, uh, starting with the character qualities of overseers, elders, and pastors, and we'll get to the deacons here shortly, and to women as it applies to the whole church as we move forward through this great book. So I want to be, uh, give a reminder that the titles and synonyms used in Scripture in this particular section, overseers, elders, pastors, these are all synonyms in Scripture. And so these are qualifications both of vocational and non-vocational elders. And so I just want to uh, be clear about that. And we will start today by reading chapters, chapter 3, 1 through 7. And Ronaldo's been bringing us through um, the first three verses. I'm going to continue with verses 4 through 7. But before we do that, I just wanted to give a little bit of uh, clarity regarding the structure of this particular section. So as I read it, um, you can have some clarity to it. So verse 2 will start a new sentence. That sentence is the overseer then must be. Verse 4 starts the next sentence. That sentence begins with, he must be. Verse 7 starts the next sentence and starts with, he must be. There is a sentence in between. It's in parentheses. Verse 5 is in parentheses and is rhetorical. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The parentheses here is not to say that this was some inserted thought. Uh, this is in the original t text and is clearly part of the flow. But what it does indicate, what the parentheses do, is indicate that there is a thought within a thought. There's a question here to pause. And so that is the way this should be seen and read uh, from the original. So let's start and let's read this great section of scripture. It says, starting in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he, does, he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's just open by praying. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the goal of its instruction. We thank you for Paul and Timothy. We thank you for the salvation that you brought to them. We thank you that as 
Paul walked on that road to Damascus, you called him uh, by his name into your family, that he might be redeemed and might so serve as such a servant to the church, that he might become an example to us, that he might be an example even of understanding his own sin and understanding your great grace and mercy. Lord, as we walk together in humble submission to you as a body of Christ, help us all the more to consider these things, our own salvation and its merit to your glory, that we might consider how we can serve all the more, how we can represent you, how we might be salt and light in a dying and and a generation that needs your grace and mercy all the more. Help us, Lord, to live in a manner that's worthy of this calling. In your name I pray, amen. When I was in my teens, my grandparents moved off the farm and built a new home in town. There was one home builder in their small community. Everybody who built anything had him do the work. The home was very well built. There was one glitch, however, in the home. Uh, Over the course of the first year, the bathroom door between the master bedroom and the bathroom binded at the upper corner, making it impossible to close all the way. It was a galley bathroom, so there was an entrance into the hallway. That door worked fine. But it was the other door going into the bedroom that was sticky. My grandparents were there alone most of the time, and it really didn't matter. But when there was a large group, a family gathering, maybe at Christmas time, uh, it was a little unsettling to use the restroom and know that you couldn't shut that one door all the way. Why did the door bind? And was there an easy fix that could just be applied to the door to get it to close? There was a lot of speculation amongst family members as to how to solve this problem. What was the cause? Was it loose hinges? Was it faulty installation by this great builder? Did the house settle? How does a door go out of square? How could it work and then not work? There were multiple suggestions from many family members. Almost all of them would make the perfect door, which is perfectly square, less perfect in order to get it to work. The bottom line is that the door trim would have to come off the door, the jam would have to be removed, and it had to be reset in order to address the wrong that was created and make it right. There was no easy fix. When the core issues of character and leadership are wrong, there will be a binding within the plurality of eldership until the issues are resolved. Character qualities need to be maintained. They might be right at one point and then go off kilter. Things were off kilter in Ephesus. There were some core issues at stake. These issues were likely visible to the outside world. Timothy was given the charge by Paul to address numerous issues. Our study of 1 Timothy is a window into not only the inner workings of the church at Ephesus, but a clear instruction to every church, even today. Timothy was to instruct certain men to stop teaching strange doctrines, to not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies 
which result in mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God. The church failing to administer what God had intended. That's all too common today. Maybe the reason that we spend very little time in churches across America in the book of 1 Timothy. This is a pretty convicting treatise uh, before us. There were incompetent teachers making confident assertions regarding things that they do not even understand. They were misusing the teaching of the law rather than as a pointer to man's need for the gospel. It appears that rather than dealing with the need for repentance and response to the gospel, sin was being overlooked and morality notions, things of just living right life, not convicted lives, uh, were replacing deep conviction and the need for salvation, a renewal of the heart. False teaching always provides a useless response to the questions before man. The integrity of the gospel always takes the hit. The grace of God, his patience with sinners, and the place for true mercy and the place for right conscience, obscured by blasphemous teaching, it says even causing shipwreck to faith. Paul excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander from the fellowship. The goal of instruction was lost, and the speculation and bad fellowship habits were becoming entrenched. Paul urged Timothy to teach young men to be devoted to prayer, to pray for governments, and to live lives of integrity, putting on a deep desire for the lost souls. To have a gospel heart of love for the lost is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. This was Paul's focus. This was his ministry. This was his task to preach the gospel, to point sinners to Christ, to do this with a clear conscience and with integrity of heart. Paul states in chapter 2, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He confirms, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles, Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want every man in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul was a truth teller. His ministry was full of Christ-centered gospel integrity. He was concerned that the God-ordained roles for women were being skewed. Their adornment was of external nature and not of godliness. There must have been concerns with women of the church moving into, leadership, into the leadership vacuum. As Paul indicated in chapter 2, verse 12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Paul's instruction to Timothy was to remain and to correct. It was obvious why those who aspire to be elders, overseers, pastors, are desperately needed to ensure that shepherding occurs with godly fidelity. It is obvious that the family of God, his church, needs leaders who stand in the harmony, in harmony with truth, with his truth, his love, his passion, doing ministry faithfully and with his character. People redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, walking humbly with their God, submitting to him through obedient love. The church at Ephesus was like that door in my grandparents' home. 
built with a right foundation, but it had become off kilter, lacking function, binding as it were, and creating dissension. This is why Paul was so directive in his passion regarding qualified leadership. They needed to be trustworthy with the mission, able to demonstrate a life lived as an example, men filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit in every walk of life, preaching and teaching and faithfully instructing from Scripture. Integrity of leadership is a biblical mandate. Integrity in leadership is biblically defined. In 2 Timothy, Paul would charge Timothy again, and by extension, every church to be a strong model and to teach. In chapter 2, it says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also to never forget the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless and lead to ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Charismatic communicators without the right character and message are probably named Hymenaeus, Philetus, or Alexander. Humorous personalities without truth are merely comedians. Administrative competence without godly character is malpractice in the administration of the church. We are so blessed to be instructed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used the issues at Ephesus to teach us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. The main bulwark against false teachers in the church is leaders who contend faithfully for the truth of the faith without hypocrisy and with spiritual maturity. In this first section, Paul laid out these qualifications clearly and very succinctly. It's been two weeks since we covered this, and I'm doing a little bit of longer introduction today just to bring forth the context of the passage. He laid it out clearly and provided the mandates for administration of the household of God. Elder qualifications from 1 Timothy. The man who is aspiring to be an elder must be right-minded. He who aspires to the office of overseer desires a fine work. The overseer, the pastor, the elder must be above reproach. This is to say that the pastor or elder or overseer is living a life without justifiable blame for wrongdoing. Nothing of which to accuse him. This is to live like Christ accused for certain but not guilty. 
The Apostle Paul was brought forward for a trial, but his crimes did not violate his conscience or his faith in Christ. The elder is to be the husband of one wife. If married, he is to be a one-woman man. If he is single, he is to be like Paul and Timothy, not given to immorality, but resolute in purity for the sake of the gospel. The married leaders are to be one flesh with their wives, cleaving to what has been witnessed in their union. They are to what Hebrews 13 addresses, marriages to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For if the teachers are deviating from this, they cannot be passionate about the sanctification of others. The leader must be temperate. This is to say sober and sober-minded. Some translations use the term clear-minded. Clear thinking without, without mind-altering substances so that they are alert to danger, able to make important decisions. It is impossible for sanctified decision-making and godly household management to occur while filled with other-mindedness. No matter what is causing the intoxication. The leaders must be prudent. That is to say, they are well-disciplined and able to manage priorities, serious about spiritual things and wise with information about others. They are to be respectable. His life is well-ordered and is without confusion. His life is not chaotic, but well-structured. The leaders are to be hospitable, a love to entertain strangers, to love your neighbor as yourself, to be concerned about those outside of the faith. They are be, to be able to teach. Effective moral modeling should be followed by effective biblical teaching. As the, ability to, the leader needs to have the ability to convey biblical doctrine in an understandable manner. Paul expands this in his letter to Titus, saying that the elder overseer pastor should be able to refute error. He is not to be addicted to wine, does not have a reputation of a drinker. He does not associate himself with the scenes of drinking behavior. These behaviors are quarrelsome, arrogant, lacking respect, and overbearing. He is not to be pugnacious, pugnacious not argumentative to the point of verbal threat, physical combativeness, or as it states in Titus, not self-willed or demanding his own way. The instruction also provides alternatives. He is to be gentle. Instead of given to blows with others, considerate, forbearing, and gracious. Peaceable, not quarrelsome or divisive. Free from the love of money, not coveting other people's stuff, but instead generous, a steward of God's grace in provision. I think there are a lot of parallels between an elder's work, a pastor's work, a teacher's work, and the qualifications of character and living by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such thing there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
In verse 25 of Galatians 5, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not, not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Now we come to the, our three points in today's passage. Today, as we finalize the characteristics of godly elders, we're going to take a look at the three remaining I'm entitling the first point, the audition for pastoral work, the family. The demonstration of spiritual maturity and the performance appraisal by unbelievers. The audition for pastoral work is the family. Dr. James Dobson wrote a popular book in the 1980s called Parenting Isn't for Cowards. Not sure exactly what's in that book, although I did read it way back. The obvious implication from the title of the book is that parenting will be challenging at times and very onerous. It will take spiritual maturity and skill to raise children to adults. Parenting will testify to a father's character and leadership capacity. The family provides the witness of one's character. Are we passive? Are we faithful? Are we demanding? Are we encouraging? Our kids testify to our competence whether we want them to or not. If we parent in a manner that exasperates them, frustrates them, they will likely and ultimately respond in kind. Paul's instruction to Timothy is that if a man is a father, the products of the home should be considered in his qualifications to lead the church. He must be, there we have the must, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The parentheses is inserted, as I indicated in this case, to show the contrasting, complete thought that is in a rhetorical form. It's axiomatic to say that without one, the other will not be true. If there is not good management in the home, then that person will not manage the household of God effectively. The text states that the household management must be done well. He is to manage or supervise his household in a manner that produces a certain outcome. His management is to keep his children under control with all dignity. To manage is to preside over, to set the tone for the family, to govern. This is a father's call. The father is active and instructive. Proverbs 13.24 says that he who holds Withholds his rod, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. This takes engagement. It takes love to care and to nurture a child. Control of children is qualified by the term in all dignity. Dignity means with all seriousness. The task of fathering is taken seriously. The quality of response to his management is substantial. There's a gravity to this. The text says, with all dignity, not with a little bit. 
His governance should reflect a life example of faith, a commitment to scripture that produces results in the home. This is a man who has an unwavering faith in Christ in the home. In fact, we must be above reproach in parenting and family dealings. From verse 2, we read that we must be above reproach. That is the heading of which all the instruction comes down to. His family management demonstrates a quality that is worthy of consideration to him being able or capable or gifted to leading the church. Sacrificial love is in this home. For if love is to be characterized in the church, it must also be the hallmark of the home. He gives no reason for his children to rebel, although they may. From Colossians 3.21 we read, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will lose heart. This is a home where the children have not lost heart. John MacArthur goes on to state that an elder's children, in his opinion, from the text, must be believing. We do not see that from this text, but we would offer that children in an elder's home should have the appearance and behavior as if they are saved. The elder is, as was already said, a one-woman man, and his marriage must be an example to the flock and the outside world. This also sets the tone for an emotionally stable home. If you want to upset the home, have an emotionally unstable marriage. If you don't manage your marriage well, you will have trouble in your child rearing. His children reflect his character through their response of obedience to their parents. This is to say that the dignity offered is not fake. If it were fake, it would not be dignified. There is order in the home, there is stability in the governance of the family. The children fall in line. The children do this from sincerity of heart. This family is not perfect. Mine certainly is not. It has adversity. It struggles, but it remains an example. That's the hope. Paul has provided instruction to the church regarding family roles. I just want to highlight, we've been going through in first hour, just to not blur contexts. I'm going to walk into this a little bit, understanding that Timothy is teaching, preaching, and correcting the church at Ephesus. That the letter of the Ephesians was written prior to Timothy's arrival in order to do the work that Paul called him to. Timothy would have been well-suited to understand this same tone. This would have been pre-existing in his mindset. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, leaders, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that you might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle in any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, and it's, it's a, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This should be notable in marriage of a church leader. It should be settled in the home and should be a testimony from the children. If the leader teaches these things, his character must also live them out. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Then verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Most churches ignore this qualification. The marriage is controlled by a different set of marching orders. Husbands are not managing by a loving sacrificial in a loving sacrificial way. The children's behavior is lowered to societal norms. The homes look more like a house of modern culture and not of a spirit-filled harmony. The elder's home is not to be ruled as in a manner of an iron fist. The purpose of a well-managed home is to glorify God. It is not ordered for one to become a leader. That is not the goal. The home is ordered to reflect the grace of God in you for salvation. It is to be a testimony and a glory to God. The elder's home ought to be authentic. It's not dressed for Sunday morning alone. The elder's home is to be a place of hospitality, If that's the case, if we're supposed to be hospitable, it must be a house of of hospitality, but not of hypocrisy. A man may aspire to the office of elder, but try as he might, his family may not provide that example. We ought to be praying for all the families, engaged in encouraging one another towards love and good deeds, walking with one another together, loving each other, just as we have been instructed to do in the word of God. Let us walk with humility, a desire to reflect our Lord's work in us at all times. I had the privilege of being raised in a God-fearing home. I also had the privilege of witnessing qualifications in action by a godly pastor. His wife, Ruth, his kids, Mark, 
Dan, and Joyce testified of their father's pastoral qualifications until his final breath. May we, may I, have the courage, the wisdom, and the grace to lead like my pastor. John Calvin writes this about this passage of scripture. Paul does not insist that a pastor should have no experience in ordinary life. But he says that he should be an experienced family man. No matter how much we may admire celibacy and a life given over to thinking that is remote from ordinary living, wise men know from personal experience that people who have experienced ordinary life are used to do the duties that human relationships impose are far more suitable to govern the church. Being tested, as it were. In verse 5, Paul explains this by saying that a man who is unable to rule his own family is not suitable, is not a suitable person to govern God's church. The person who wins the apostles' approval here is not the one who is clever in domestic matters, but the one who has learned to rule his family with positive discipline. He specifically mentions children as they are likely to reflect their father's disposition. So it would be scandalous for a pastor to have sons who lived a dissolute or rogue or disreputable life. Later on, Paul deals with wives. But here he touches on the central part of the family. With proper respect, Paul says that he means what he means by, by proper respect in the first chapter of his letter to Titus. Having said that overseers, children, should not be out of control and disobedient. He immediately adds that it should be possible, should not be possible to accuse them of living a dissolute life. He means that they should behave in a chaste, modest, respectful manner. Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. Clearly a person who is unfit to rule his own family is totally unsuitable to govern the whole group of people. In addition, to the fact that he does not possess the necessary gifts for the task, what kind of authority would a person command among a group of people when his whole family holds him in contempt? From Titus 1.5, it's written in this way, For this reason I left Crete. I left you in Crete, excuse me, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed. Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children, in this case, it says, who believe. It's actually rendered more effectively children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The New American Standard uses that translation, having children who believe. This is more likely meant children, as I indicated, who are faithful. If, if you are parenting a five-year-old, the sovereign nature of their salvation has yet to be determined. Neither Paul nor Timothy were parents. Their audition for church leadership came from a different source. It was primarily through persecution, and a life 
of a living sacrifice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not necessary for an elder, pastor, teacher to necessarily be married. Paul was not, Timothy was not, but they're tested in a different way. They're tested also by examination. You may not be married, but your preparation and life-living goals as a believer are are crystal clear within Scripture. We're told in Romans 12, Paul says, Therefore, based on all the theology had gone over in Romans, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're given a whole body of scripture that instructs us how to live. Elders are at a different standard of character, quality, and appointment. But people within a church are in every different state, and that's okay. We want to encourage you to love others and to live a life obedient to the grace that's given us in Scripture. Everybody is moving in a different layer and level of time. Sanctification works progressively in that time. Colossians gives us a great encouragement in, in, this, in this way. It says in chapter 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Paul indicated in his opening phrases to Timothy, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Let us be right motivated within our church. Let us be known to being singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Whatever we do in word or deed, that we are doing it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks through him to God the Father. If you are a father and, are, and your parenting is not what it ought to be, aspire to be a godly man, living to be an example to your children in all things, loving and leading sacrificially, adorning yourself with the fruit of the Holy Spirit as you walk in this world. This aspiration of biblical fatherhood is part of your spiritual service of worship. 
Do not impose on your family rigid rules for governance so that you can be exalted to an office. Love your wife sacrificially. Raise your children faithfully. Be an example to others and encourage and walk alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. Encourage them all the more. This is our whole goal with Grace and Granite for Men's Study, is to instruct us to walk together with one another in God's grace, working through leadership goals that can enhance wherever you are in life. You may never be called to church leadership, but you are still an important and integral part of God's family. And we want to encourage you to gain that insight. So encouraged even by our first hour here, just digging deeper into God's word. What a blessing it is to have that equipping uh, to bring forward within family. Number two, the spiritual leader must demonstrate spiritual maturity. It says in verse 6 of our text, of chapter 3, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Timothy was instructed to look for elders who were not new converts. The thought process here is to not put someone in leadership who recently responded to the gospel. This could put the church at risk of leadership that is puffed up with self and not consumed by grace. Conceit is the enemy of the church. We are to be clothed with humility, having less of self and more of him, preferring others first. Satan loves a church led by conceited leaders. The Greek word for conceited is actually rendered to puff up with smoke. Conceit is pride, and it is the greatest threat to the church in our day. A new believer is particularly susceptible to pride. Pride was what brought discontentment to Satan. It caused him to want to exalt himself above God. This is always the trade-off with pride. God is moved out of the driver's seat so we can take the wheel. Even though Satan was the highest-ranking angel, he became discontent with his position. Satan's fall represents the condemnation incurred by the devil. It is to be removed from a position. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. From Matthew 23, while Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he said, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts, him, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The leader should be mature in their faith. One commentary puts it this way, an overseer must not be a recent convert. Paul does not specify how recent is too recent. 
If he had in mind a specific bare minimum of time, he did not make it known. What he has made known to us is that the overseer must be of good character. A pastor must have proven character, which assumes enough time to prove that he really is who he says he is. It takes time. The end time should provide evidence of maturity. If time does not provide such evidence, the qualifications have not been met. But faithfulness and good character over time is the proof. When this proof has, of endurance is lacking, there is a risk that the overseer might become prideful in his position, perhaps even calling his own faith into question. A true believer will not come into the condemnation of the devil. So what is in mind here is that the conceited elder may not even be saved at all. What a tragedy that has occurred throughout the church history. Unqualified elders and, and or possibly unbelieving church leaders. One of these two has already happened in Ephesus. While Paul does not make a statement regarding their spiritual state, Paul highlights Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul describes their faith as shipwrecked. Paul delivers them over to Satan. The turning over to Satan, like the brother in 1 Corinthians 5, was remedial. It was a teaching issue, so they would learn not to blaspheme and hopefully be restored. It will take qualified and mature men like Timothy to do the work of the church of church discipline. It will take true, mature, and true believers to shepherd God's flock. So we have the audition for church leadership, which is the family. We have the demonstration of spiritual maturity, which is time-tested godly character. And now we have the performance appraisal by the unbeliever. The godly leader must be seen as credible outside the church. In verse 7 it says, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. In verses 6 and 7, we see two areas of danger, the condemnation incurred by the devil and the snare of the devil. The victory of the church is ensured, but the enemy has a different agenda. The first is appointing someone without maturity, resulting in a prideful man making notoriety by position as opposed to the administration of the gospel. The second error is not insisting that the outside reputation of leaders pass the character test. This is a snare. This is a trap. The pastor, elder, overseer must be of good reputation in all settings. This is in the neighborhood, in the workplace, at the restaurant, on the roadway, online. I do not know if the builder of my grandparents' home was a believer, but I can tell you that his homes that he built are still sought after in that town today. His reputation was to pay attention to the details and ensure that quality product was built. If he built the home, its reputation followed suit. He died in his 50s, but his reputation with the entire town has outlived him by 40 years. 
Unfortunately, the door in my grandparents' home was a little sticky. No man will carry these characteristics to perfection. But we are to walk humbly with our God and make every effort to ensure that his church is well represented by their leaders and by those who attend. The leaders of the church are to have the characteristics of being above reproach in the outside world. Leaders ought to be quick to apologize and to reconcile their relationships. If a man has a bad reputation out of the church, then he will bring disrepute onto the entire body. The integrity of the church leadership must be internal within the church and external beyond the church. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're, we're given this level of encouragement. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, not for money, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Paul never instructed churches to find leaders who were good speakers. As a matter of fact, Paul did not consider himself very showy or very articulate. He didn't say to find forceful and driven leaders who can bring your church over the next edge of church leadership. He did not look for strong visionaries to lead the church, but faithful men to guide and to be an example. Church leaders don't need to be good at PowerPoint. Some may even lack decisive decision-making. All these things are fine in the context of leading, but the primary issue of Paul's concern was the spiritual integrity of those who serve and the ability to convey biblical truth. It's true that some will be more gifted. Some will be more administrative. Some will be more given to walk with the lowly of heart. Some will be more given to engage the challenges of life if they have had their own. Some will be given more to evangelistic zeal. Some will have better memories to share, quicker minds. But every believer is given the armor of God and the indwelling spirit, and may we as a people and as leaders be found humble and faithful in our service to one another. Peter gives us this encouragement in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. 
as each one has received a special gift, employ it in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, as we see your instruction, we see the inadequacies of the human heart, the inadequacies of the human intention. Lord, we're so grateful that you have rewired us through the work of your Son. We thank you for the sacrifice that has brought us into communion with a holy God. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to do the work and to endure. Help us to show this dying world a light of the gospel through our compassion for one another, through our love and sacrificial giving, through our character. Lord, help us to be the hands and feet of the gospel as we move forward, serving one another in such a way that is just in, infectious to this world, that it represents your great glory in us, that our lives might be doxological as we walk forward. Lord, even as we fellowship in the Lord's Supper as well, help us to consider these things. Be quick to confess, quick to correct, quick to assess, using your word as a guiding light as we walk in faithfulness to you. In your name I pray, amen.